Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is the 363rd episode. And uh, you're listening to us on Voice America Business Channel. And this is our eighth year broadcasting across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood in California. Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Did you hear the news that all those popular YouTubers, you know, the ones that are 22 and making $2 million to $10 million a year, did you know that they're all stressed lonely and exhausted. I thought that was just from counting their money. But do you know how YouTube works? When YouTube's algorithm notices a video being watched millions of times, it starts directing viewers to the uploader's other videos. So it gains a momentum. And YouTuber's ongoing success depends not so much on a smash hit as on having day-by-day, everyday reliability, consistency, frequency, and being interesting. You can't just be a one-hit wonder. And without day-to-day reliability, consistency, and frequency, you can slip off the radar really fast. If you do, you lose favour with the algorithm that supports you. And missing a day's upload, just a day's upload, can cause you to tumble right down the search ratings. I know with my um, daily newsletter how hard it is to be consistent and get good product out there all the time. It is bloody difficult. And many YouTubers find that what started out as being the most fun job imaginable quickly slid into something really bleak and lonely. And this year, there's been a wave of videos by prominent YouTubers talking about their burnout, chronic fatigue, and depression. It's all pretty sad, isn't it? Ellie Mills, a 20-year-old YouTuber, in a video entitled Burnt Out at 19, said, this is all I ever wanted. This is literally my fucking dream. And I'm fucking so fucking unhappy. That's what Mills said. And she gained a lot of attention and 3.6 million views for a video she posted last November. She was featured on the cover of Diva magazine and she won a Shorty Award for Breakout YouTuber. But six months later, she posted the burnout video explaining that she's always stressed Her anxiety and depression keep getting worse and she's waiting to hit her breaking point. That's all pretty pretty tragic for a kid who's just 20. So when a YouTuber passes the 1 million subscribers mark, they're presented with a gold plaque. That marks the event. The size of viewership and quality of uploads become the main markers of their value. But algorithm-led content curation makes creators feel disposable, challenging them to churn out videos knowing there are 
400 hours of content posted on YouTube every 60 seconds. So you're out there not only competing with the people that are out there now, but with a new 400 hours of content every 60 seconds, all trying to stop you from making an income. And your income's dependent on the number of people who watch your videos each week. So the algorithm actually decides what and even when and if you get to eat. So many believe it's come to sit at the core of a growing mental health crisis among video creators. In April this year, you might remember that Nassim Agadam entered YouTube's Californian campus and opened fire on employees. That attack was driven by her belief that the company's algorithm had passed over her videos. So we're talking about a serious problem here. So it's not just creating the frequency and consistency of content that leads to burnout. You've got to keep audiences engaged. That means being active on social media, interacting with fans, writing, presenting and editing. And all that's taxing enough and a major contributor to occupational stress, particularly when you're getting harassed, you get plenty of threats to your safety and privacy, you're getting ongoing toxicity in the emails and the social media that you get. Add to that the exhaustion of performing, the stress of comments, the financial anxiety and the pressure of managing reputation and not to mention your professional ties. And this can all mess with your head and leave you tired and very stressed. So you can become a superstar with one viral video at any age or any stage from any location. And without support, the potential to be burned by the exposure is great for the majority who make very little money. Getting support is an impossible expense. So the largest demographic on the side are those in their 20s. They work ceaselessly, feel invincible and boundless, and they have loads of energy right up to the point when they don't. And that's all pretty sad. And who knows where it's going to go. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read. And every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to Hyperloop to autonomous cars, blockchain, uh, cryptocurrencies. And today's newsletter talks about how do you think the world will end? Very interesting. Will it be destroyed by asteroids? World War Three? Climate change? Aliens? Well, no. The greatest natural threat to humanity is super volcanoes. You should read it. It's interesting. And to keep abreast of all the new developments in business and technology and ensure that you're able to compete in this ever-competitive world, you must get the Bob Pritchard newsletter. It's really easy. Simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll. And if you don't want to get it anymore, simply unsubscribe and it'll be gone in a minute. I don't talk politics on this show and I've often been attacked by people accusing me of being a Trump supporter and I've been attacked by just as many people accusing me of being a progressive. 
So this commentary is not a political statement, but one of fact. Sexual assault allegations against adults for their actions as, as high schoolers and college students have been dismissed by some in authority as merely actions of a teenager or even just locker room talk. That is absolute unadulterated crap. What the hell is teenage behaviour? Who does it apply to? It seems to me that it only applies to a specific group of teenagers. Many people, including those at the top level of government, dismiss sexual assault allegations by saying adults cannot be held accountable because these alleged acts were only the useful indiscretion of teenagers. Does teenage behaviour apply to anyone or everyone? No. The teenage years are usually assumed to be a time of ex experimentation, risk-taking and rebellion. But where does this experimentation, risk-taking and rebellion intersect with illegality, illegality and morally repugnant behaviour? The term adolescence is described as between the ages of 12 and 18, a period of rebelliousness and individualism. Rebellion, rebelliousness, psychologists believed, was a developmental requirement for the full flowering of self. They described traits such as rebelliousness, emotional turbulence, sexual recklessness, but these descriptions of adolescence were written about white middle-class boys. And they're the ones who could enjoy an extended childhood of social and sexual experimentation. Lower-class boys and the vast majority of non-white boys were expected to grow up earlier and enter the manual labour market and assume responsibilities in their teens. A prolonged preparation for adulthood was only available to those who had economic means. So in nearly 120 years, nothing seems to have changed. Privileged white boys' culture is just rough horseplay, innocently naughty, not dangerous, where non-white boys, on the other hand, routinely experience adult adultification the assignment of adult motivations and ability. We don't have to look far for contemporary examples. Trayvon Martin, just 17, was stalked and killed by a vigilante neighbour who suspected he was a threat. He was 17, walking down the street. 12-year-old Tamir Rice was killed because police officers thought he was a danger. And 17-year-old boys of colour are regularly tried as adults and sent to prison with prison terms much longer than whites usually get. So innocently naughty behaviour has historically been the prerogative of teenage white boys rather than girls. Rebelliousness was frowned upon if girls, whether they were white or non-white, expressed it. Girls were simply not imagined in psychologists' work to have the same entitlements to experimentation and innocent risk-taking as boys. You know, still, in US colleges, sororities, unlike fraternities, they're bound, have, they have a ban on alcohol. Boys don't have a ban on alcohol, but the girls do. And witness the re recent pillaring of women by our nation's leaders 
because they possibly had a drink while teenagers. Compared this with, I like beer. I drink beer. It's ridiculous standards. It's so unequal. It's ridiculous. There's no physiological reason for holding that unruly or rebellious behaviour has to accompany endocrine changes in the teen years. Our uneven expectations about teenage behaviour, condoning white wealthy boys' actions, but not those of girls or boys who aren't white, say a hell of a lot more about society than it does about teenagers. 240,000 incidents of rape and sexual assault were not reported last year. 240,000 incidents not reported. And nothing is going to change without a total change of attitude by people in positions of influence. This is not a political argument. This is simply a moral one. Now, my guest after the break is Noel Dennehy the co-founder and chief, chief operating officer of Aid Tech, the first company in the world to deliver international aid using blockchain technology. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting across the world this week from my studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, the greatest place on earth where entertainment meets technology. And I'll be back in a minute. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. This is where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do and their successes. We, find it, we try to find out about the challenges they face. And I guess at the bottom of it all, we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, somewhere around 97 or 98% of all new businesses today fail. So what is it that makes that 2% to succeed different than the 98% that fail? I mean, most of the people who have a startup have a good product, maybe not a great product, but have a good product that deserves to... Um, at least enjoy some success, but they don't. 
So what is it? Is it the um, is it luck? Is it the um, guidance of the entrepreneur? Have they got some gene that the rest of us don't have? Because it is extremely difficult to create a successful business. We all need all the help we can. So that's why it's important to have mentors. If you don't have a mentor, you're crazy. You should surround yourself with people who know what they're doing, who have done it before. It will save you making a shitload of mistakes, trust me. And you need to take on board the advice that you get from people like my next guest who have been successful several times. So take on board that advice and it will definitely help you. My guest today, Noel Dennehy, I'm speaking to him in Ireland. I don't know whether you've been to Dublin. Great place. I've been up there quite a few times giving speeches. I love it. And Niall is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Aid Tech. Now, they've got offices all over the world. I hadn't heard of them before, but they've got offices all over the planet and they're very successful. They were the first company in the world to deliver international aid using blockchain technology. When you think about blockchain, it makes sense. And uh, I think I've mentioned before, I'm doing an ICO in Africa where we're doing pretty much the same, well, we're delivering we're delivering aid and we're using the blockchain. That's probably where the similarity finishes. But Niall founded the company in response to the need for transparency and donor engagement. You know, a lot of, uh, there's not much transparency often. And Niall's vision is to position aid tech, it's just A-I-D, T-E-C-H, as a company that can be profitable as well as a company that is socially responsible. And I think that's that's got to be a good business in this world. Aid Tech's platform enables entitlements like aid and welfare and remittances and donations and healthcare to be digitised and transparently delivered to end users through digital ID and blockchain technology, totally transparent. So, and listen to this. Aid Tech is the current global winner of the City Tech for Integrity Challenge. They received the James Wolfenson Game Changer Award for companies using technology to fight corruption, and they got that at the international from the International Monetary Fund. They were also recent winners of the Smart Dubai Blockchain Challenge in 2018, and they're IBM's number one global startup and MasterCard's company of the year. That is a phenomenal record. Really brilliant. Now, prior to his work at AidTech, Niall previously co-founded and led the design and development of numerous award-winning apps and platforms, such as Imprez and PrezX. Niall also held senior technology positions in organisations such as HP, Ericsson and LG. So the guy's obviously no idiot, right? Pretty smart. Hi, Niall. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Bob, it, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the show, and that is by far, bar none, the best intro that I have ever gotten. We like to think that we've invent, we've uh, we've perfected the art of pitching, but I dare say, Bob, that you've perfected the art of pitching. Bob Pritchard, Pr- uh, Pritchard Supreme. Uh, great to be here, and uh, thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure. Well, 
you could be anywhere in the world. You've got offices around the world. You could be anywhere in the world. Why do you want to be in a cold – obviously, you're Irish, but why do you want to be in a cold, <laughs> miserable place like Dublin? Uh, we we see uh, Bob. We think we're like we're we're an island. We're out on our own, but we're never on our own. But Dublin, um, Dublin, right now, Bob. We did chat beforehand, and you told me about LA, about how great it is a place to start. We think Dublin is like the new London. It's a little. It's like London on a smaller scale. It's more competitive. It's a better place to set up a business. There's a really great ecosystem developing here. Uh, we're backed by the Irish government. We are, in fact, one of uh, the first blockchain company in the world to be backed by two governments, that being both Singapore, that being Ireland. So we've got the weight of a gov- of two governments behind us. We're a blockchain company. One of the governments happens to be our own. Uh, but you, Dublin is a great place to set up a company. Um, it's much cheaper than London. We're within the European Union. Um, the fintech scene right here, right now, it's really happening. It's a really hot market to be in. Um, but despite the weather, which we're having our best summer in 40 years at the moment, it's generally a great place to live, great place, great place to bring up a family, but ultimately then a very good place to grow a company. Yeah, but it sounds like it. Well, it's got a lot in common with Ireland, hasn't it? I mean, with England, I mean, with London, it's cold and it's wet. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, it's great that... Well, we um, like to think the people might be a little bit more cheery, but that's no disrespect to anybody from England who's listening uh, from London, but... Uh, uh, we think the people make all the difference, and we're we're very proud uh, Irish people over here. But the people really would be. Um, I often say, Bob, the best thing and the worst thing about Ireland is the people. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, it's great that it's developed into such a big technology hub. How how long has that been taking? How long has that been taking place? It's, it's probably taken a little bit longer, Bob, than it would than we would have liked. But really, I think, um, ironically, since we had the Great Recession in in Ireland back in two thousand and eight, we were probably hit worse than any other country within the European Union. Arguably, us and Greece were were affected the most, given that we're a large or small, we're a dynamic economy. But uh, you would be surprised, Bob. And even aid tech, which I can talk about shortly, we were formed partly because of the uh, you know the Great Recession. I'll I'll tell you more about that later on. But really, Bob, a lot of people, including uh, people that I know, myself included, set up businesses in the midst of the, uh, the so-called Great Recession. Yeah. And really, since then, whatever it is that we think Irish people, we respond pretty well to adversity. And oftentimes, it takes a crisis, really, for us to respond. And uh, that's what people are doing. But a lot of the people I know who've created the best companies in Dublin at the moment, right now, they've come out of either losing their job in the recession, sure. seeing an opportunity that wasn't there before, um, and it was a good time to start a business, but really, I think things have changed a lot in the past ten years, and we've got a really um, strong momentum right now. And the fact that we're in the European Union, we're starting to see a lot of companies from uh, from from Britain. They're coming here um, in anticipation of what may happen with Brexit coming down the line. Yeah, um, we're seeing a lot of positive stuff happening in Dublin today. So, how did Aitech begin? You're in the middle of a recession, and you know, everything around you is falling apart. You just sort of woke up at 2 o'clock one morning and went, aha, I've got an idea. How did it come about? <laughs> I'll tell you how it came about, Bob. It's, it's mainly down to my, my good friend, my co-founder. I tell people he is the, the inspiration of, person, of determination. He personifies what it is to be in a startup. But my good friend and my co-founder, Joe, uh, in the midst of the recession, he uh, still had to get up and to go to run a marathon, which was 151 miles long through the Moroccan desert, something called the Marathon de Sable. Um, the guy collapsed on day two. He collapsed again on day three. He still got up. He ran the marathon. But 
to cut the story a little bit shorter, Bob, he raised a big, big sum of money for the marathon that he ran back in 2009 through the desert. Um, one person who gave him a lot of money back uh, in 2009 was a wealthy uh, philanthropist based here in Dublin. Uh, he managed to find a big chunk of change to give Joe to run the marathon. Uh, but that same guy came to Joe about six months after the Marathon de Sabla and said, are you able to tell me where my money went? What was it spent on? Uh, Joe wasn't able to do that. So it played on his mind a bit. Um, and we always tell people, look, we weren't you know, humanitarians by default, but we've become humanitarians. But we, uh, we also are in this to make a profit. But Joe then uh, started toying with, uh, you know, with Bitcoin. Uh, he read the white paper around the same time it came out, heard about Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and Joe then happened to get interested uh, somewhat later, around the year 2011. He started doing a, uh, a master's degree in the University of Nicosia, Cyprus. Wow. They were one of the countries that were hit by a bail-in by the European Union. Um, money was being taken out of people's accounts. Um, and Joe was literally getting the pieces bound in Dublin and a really shrewd guy here helping him to do that said, you know what I think the real innovation with this Bitcoin and blockchain technology, it's not the anonymity that people think it brings, but it is the, uh, the transparency. And that same guy helping him to bind the thesis runs a charity where people cycle um, all the way from Dublin uh, over towards Chernobyl in, uh, in Belarusia yeah. to help children suffering from, um, you know, who suffered from the nuclear fallout. And he said, you know what, I think the innovation with this Bitcoin, with this blockchain is traceability. We had an idea then that could we apply the technology that we got quite interested in in a real life scenario on the ground in a really tough place and could we use the technology to trace the same donations. So if Joe was to run the marathon de Sabla all over again, which he plans to do again, the, the crazy guy that he is, in about a year's time, would he be able to tell people definitively where the money went? And that's the technology that we've built. We're enabling people to do that right now today. I guess it's handy when you're starting up a new business to be in business with a nutcase. <laughs> why, would, <laughs> why would somebody decide to run a 150-mile marathon? I mean, anybody that's got well, their you, marbles together. <laughs> you might be right about that. And I'm probably a bit of a nutcase myself, Bob, in that I've done Ironman triathlons in your good country, Australia. The first one that I did was back in 2009 in a beautiful place called Port Macquarie. Yeah. Um, I've done numerous marathons. But we like the challenge, really, that they bring. It sounds like a cliche, but... Uh, we, we probably, uh, I may seem a bit calmer on the surface than Joe would be, but I think we both have, let's say, one too many marbles missing now at this stage. And I think you kind of need to, to be like that in order to run a, you know, a startup and especially one in a, you know, with a technology like blockchain, which is pretty nascent. And there aren't really many scalable, demonstrable, you know, applications of the tech. And, you know, people are saying there never will be. It depends. But we thought, look, we've got enough marbles missing that we filter out the noise. We stick to what we need to do. And um, it, it just seems to filter out noise, this, the lack of marble. So probably a good thing. And I think something that a lot of entrepreneurs do have in common, regardless of where they are, be it in Silicon Valley or LA where you are or Australia, they've all got a few marbles loose. Yeah, I think um, if you've got the discipline to run a 150-mile marathon, um, you know, it takes discipline and perseverance and so does a startup. Um, and you've got to overcome all sorts of adversities in both. So tell me sort of step by step, how does this technology work? Why use blockchain? Can't you just use a pen and pad like other people? <laughs> 
You could do. Um, and again, I'll give you an example, Bob, of the, the very first thing that we did. It was back in Lebanon in uh, 2015. So um, I talked a little bit about the technology, but basically, Bob, we came up with this idea that we would try and bring transparency to a market that was a little bit opaque. Um, The reason that we called the company Aid Tech is that you've heard of FinTech, you've heard of CleanTech, you've heard of RegTech. We wanted to invent a new industry. Um, We took a lot of inspiration from um, uh, a guy called Peter Thiel. You and me briefly spoke about him, um, moving to the city that you're in right now, LA, etc. But one of the things that Peter Thiel said uh, when he made the investment in Facebook, that was, you know, competition is for losers, as he said in his book, um, From Zero to One. And that if you want to do something big, you really have to monopolize the market. So we were driven by a few different things. We said, number one, we wanted to make an impact. Number two, we wanted to make some money. Number three, we wanted to... um, uh, have fun doing it and um, number four then we didn't want to have a boss we didn't want to really report into one because of all those marbles that you spoke about being missing means that you're probably not cut out then for dealing with uh, with bosses and what they uh, you know how they how they deal with uh, you know uh, things yeah. so we uh, we had this idea we thought look let's try and bring transparency to aid according to uh, Ban Ki-moon the former sec gen of the United Nations about 30% of aid goes missing each year we thought that's a big market the, the 27 richest countries in the world they give out 160 billion dollars in aid each year so if you do a quick calculation that means that about 48 billion dollars in aid each year goes missing so it's a big market so with that in mind we said okay what we've got to do is prove that we've got tech that can actually work we want to prove then that uh, this blockchain technology can work in a really tough environment. So we had an idea that we would approach uh, a charity, and the charity in this case are the NGOs they might be classified was, the Red Cross, they're based here in Dublin, and a really visionary guy who saw the potential of the technology when um, my co-founder Joe really pitched it to him, was that we have this technology, um, it's basically a plastic card with a QR code on it. What you can do is you can send an entitlement to an individual anywhere in the world without restriction, and they can obtain something in return. They can obtain a good a product or a service, and you would basically then be able to show your donors, who would be people like Coca-Cola, you know, multinationals, the Irish government, the US government, where money is going. So what we did then was we ran a project on the ground, a pilot at the time back in 2015, the first ever example of blockchain technology being used for impact. We like to tell people that we invented impact on the blockchain. That's become something very trendy right now. But we ran a project where we gave plastic cards with the QR code on them. The QR code then was a blockchain wallet address. Sure. And we gave them to uh, Syrian refugees, 500 of them, in a refugee camp in Lebanon. And then what we did is we enabled refugees to use the entitlements that were sent to each card to buy products from a shop. And then basically what they could do is they could, they, can, they could obtain anything that they wanted. That could be food, that could be water, that could be toiletries. And we found oftentimes what they were purchasing, Bob, were things like toiletries, like diapers, you know, hair removal kits, sanitary products, um, deodorant, etc. Because we gave people the freedom to purchase what they want. But ultimately what was happening was back in Dublin, uh, Danny, the guy that we spoke about from yeah. the Red Cross, the head of fundraising, he was able to see in real time what was happening on the ground in uh, in Lebanon uh, with our technology and that people were getting the entitlements that they should. He was able to show that in real time to his funders that the, the money that you spent 
here's where it's going. Not necessarily who was who was obtaining the product or the good because we want to ensure that people's privacy is protected, but that with this blockchain, because it's immutable, because it's permanent, because it's tamper-proof, you can uh, irrefutably say that your donation was spent in Lebanon by a person to buy a product. And if you believe, like we do, that blockchain is this immutable, um, it's tamper-proof, corrupt sure. ledger, which cannot be changed, that it is arguably then, we believe, one of the few use cases where it makes complete sense to use blockchain. But what we realized then, Bob, was that the real big thing, um, it wasn't just a one-off project that we, uh, we wanted to do, but that there were 2.4 billion people in the world, including the refugees in Lebanon, who didn't have any form of identity. But by giving these people an identity, you can then send things like welfare, remittances, aid, donations, healthcare entitlements. I can talk a little bit more about that shortly uh, to them um, anywhere in the world. And you give them power over their own identity. You enable them to build up a profile, like a credit profile, a credit history. And for people then like Danny, who I keep going back to with the Red Cross, he then can build up a more accurate picture of what's happening on the ground in even the most remote locations. And that would enable people like Danny and the people that he works with in the supply chain for these big NGOs to better plan how they target, uh, target and send goods to people on the ground. Because as I mentioned then, one of the things that Danny found out on the ground was that people there in Lebanon were obtaining toiletries and sanitary products more than what they expected, which would have been food and water and rice, etc. So they knew then that if they were to buy these products in bulk, they would be better serving the people that they were they were reaching. But before blockchain came along, before digital identity came along, it was really hard to figure out what was really being consumed on the ground um, by these people. That's extraordinary because I think I I'm, can think of probably a dozen examples of of areas where um, this technology would be suited. Absolutely, perfectly, because once it, it's it's like the United States government, they give um, they go into a country and they give the military massive quantities of cash, which they just dole out, and they don't know whether um, the people that they've given it to are now living a life of luxury in Bermuda or something, or whether who they've <laughs> given the money to, and it's a great scam, yeah. and this this eliminates that. I think the most the most appealing part of this, from my point of view, is they know what people are buying and therefore can either try to get donations of those products to give or can actually direct to the people exactly what they need rather than guessing. They can, Bob. And one really good example, it's another project that we did recently and it's very similar to what you mentioned there. I was with a Dutch um, NGO. They're called Farm Access. They're based yes. in, um, in the Netherlands. Sure. So what we've done with them is something that we believe is one of the most powerful um, applications of the technology anywhere in the world. And this isn't theory. It's not hype. We've delivered with them. Uh, but to give you an idea there, it's, it's much like what you described with the, with the U.S. military, except you were replacing soldiers with uh, pregnant women. If you want to plant that uh, that mental image in your head, but we are basically at the, at the moment uh, we're distributing medical entitlements to pregnant women over blockchain technology uh, using a smart contract. Um, so to give you an idea and to try and paint a picture, there is a clinic in a town called Kilwa. It's about five a five hour drive from the capital of uh, Tanzania, Dar es Salaam. Um, but we spoke with the, with the the NGO. I did a presentation back in in Amsterdam last October. I met a very visionary lady called uh, Teresa De Sanctis at the, at the presentation. 
she heard me speak about identity and a lot of people being unidentified. And she said, look, we've been looking for a solution now for quite a while that can harness um, identity uh, and it can distribute entitlements to the people that we deal with. So we are now up and running uh, in a clinic, which is in this town that I spoke of, Kilwa, five hours away from Dar es Salaam. Uh, to paint the picture, Bob, what happened before in this clinic was uh, the pregnant women, they're given a booklet when they come to the clinic uh, for the first visit. It's written in Swahili. And each time they, they obtain their entitlement, that could be their prenatal care, that could be the postnatal care, that could be the antenatal care, uh, tests that a pregnant woman would get or the drugs that she would be given, like iron tablets, um, etc., folic acid. It was a completely paper-based process, and a right. doctor or midwife would scan They were literally write on the piece of paper, and that piece of paper is taken away then um, three months after the, the, the babies are born, hopefully very healthily, and that's then taken to a data processing center in Dar es Salaam, and then it's inputted into a system, and then the government and the people who fund those projects are able to look at the data uh, usually three months after that happened, and they can see what happened, and that would be if the information was entered correctly. But what we did there, Bob, was we've given the women on the ground an A-Tech digital identity, uh, and it, again, it's a QR code, which can either be appended to that same booklet or it can be put on a plastic card. And what they do then is they go to the midwife, the midwife scans the card, uh, the QR code, she can see who that individual is and what entitlements that they are entitled to get on a particular day. And what we're doing is we're saying that, okay, the ideal path for a pregnant woman is at week three, she gets the following entitlements, week six, she gets these. So we've programmed the smart contract, we've created digital assets representing things like nabendazole, folic acid, ferrosulfate, the iron tablet, and they're being sent automatically to the women who hold these identities. So when they go to the midwife or to the doctor, he knows that, okay, they have received these entitlements and I will administer them at the, um, you know, at the clinic. And then that ultimately that means that the NGO and the people who fund them uh, in real time can see on the ground, you know, are the women getting the right treatment? And the thing that we found, Bob, uh, there was that that particular clinic, they were lacking, um, they were lacking iron tablets. The, the hemoglobin machine was broken. That was something that we were tracking to. And the women weren't getting enough of the drug called nabendazole. So the really startling thing, and the thing that we were really delighted about was that the local health district officer who was able to view this data said, look, we have to get more iron tablets to this clinic in Kiowa because the women aren't getting the correct entitlements. And they were able to make that decision based on the data that was generated on the blockchain. And they could see it in real time. And then when the women came back for their uh, their following visits, they were able to see that, okay, now everybody's getting the entitlements that they should. And the only re- way, uh, or the reason that happened was because the real-time data generated on the blockchain, because we linked the entitlements to an identity, we send them out over a smart contract, meant that we, we have created what we believe is something truly groundbreaking. And we're about to scale that up now to uh, 60,000 women in uh, 60 clinics in the next uh, uh, three months. And the, the ambition there is to get that to 1 million women within Africa, which we believe we can do with the partners that we have. And we've proven demonstrably on the ground with technology that this does work. And it's not just theory, it's not hype, it's a working product. Um, and again, that's one example of what we've done to welfare, entitlements. Uh, I can talk a little bit more about them with the other partners that we work with, like remittances with the United Nations in Serbia. Uh, we're doing another project then. Um, 
Uh, we're going to be kicking off in Albania, in China, with the United Nations Development Programme. But like you said, Bob, at the start, as you eloquently put it, we can attach conditions to the entitlements that are delivered to those people. So if our technology was used by the US military, we could send an entitlement to a soldier um, via his or her digital identity, and they could then go to a uh, point of sale or to a dispensary and they can obtain what they are supposed to, and that's all made fully traceable with an asset on the blockchain. Um, and you can, again, put that conditionality with it so you know that people are getting what they should. That is brilliant. So you need to distribute the plastic cards or whatever it is, and do you also, you'd also need to provide readers. So... Yeah, we, we can do a couple of things, Bob. We can either give people a plastic card, which is, you know, a pretty rare scenario. Yes. But with the technology now that we have, it's based on, a, it's a web-based app. Yep. So it can work on any mobile phone with a web browser. Um, we, we've tested it as far back as Android Jelly Bean, which was released in 2012. And that's uh, Android being, a, you know, the, the yep. common, brow- uh, common sure. operating system around the world, particularly in the developing but we can issue identity in the form of a, either a plastic card or it could be a mobile phone. And when you get the, uh, the web app within your phone, you can go to a section, it's called My ID, and there you will see a QR code that would represent your identity as it is um, on the blockchain. And we separate in the personal information from the individual, so nothing personal would be stored in the blockchain, but just the uh, transactional information. Sure. Yeah, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize that even in refugee camps and and in some of the places that have got hideous conditions around the world, there's a hell of a lot of cell phones. But I guess there's a lot of people that don't have them too. So how do you how do you address that issue? Or, or don't you? This, yeah, yeah, and we, we do, Bob. And what we do is there is we would rely on the partners that we work with. Um, if you think about the, the reach that some of the, the great partners that we have, people like the United Nations or the Red Cross that they would have, they typically have operations around the world in uh, multiple countries, you know, uh, pretty much every country in the world. So we would partner with them in the case of distribution of plastic cards. We can literally send them, you know, a file that they can print with the QR code. They can then use our technology to assign the identity to an individual. Um, and that can be a matter if you take the example of somebody like an aid worker, they're on the ground. Uh, they can either print the uh, the QR code locally as a sticker. They could put that on a card. It could be pre-printed. They would scan the card with our um, our application, or the information can be loaded beforehand, and they can distribute that then to the individuals, and the individuals then can use that at the uh, at the the point of sale. That can be with a merchant, with a shopkeeper, with a utility company, with a dispensary. Um, and we would cater for both of them. But uh, for us, ATEC, as you know, a, a relatively small startup, we would rely on the partnerships that we have with the, uh, the big companies um, so that they can take care of the logistics, the program management, the project management. And we then focus on what we're good at, which is developing and delivering a blockchain platform for them to uh, piggyback on. Absolutely brilliant idea. So apart from delivery of aid, um I'm thinking of things like um, entitlements, government entitlements for um, new parents. A lot of companies, countries around the world give bonuses for people to have children and they do all sorts of things. Um, apart from aid, what, what are the other major uses? 
Yeah, we, we've got quite a few, Bob, and we've 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 deployed all these already. It's not theory, but um, another big one, Bob, at the moment is uh, remittances. So remittances being a, a huge market, it's worth about four hundred and sixty dollars or million billion dollars each year. Um, the global average, according to the World Bank, would be seven point six percent. So that means if you send one hundred dollars from a country like the United States back to a country maybe in Central America, take Guatemala for example, the fees there could be really high. And generally the rule of thumb, Bob, is that the the less developed the country is, the higher the fees are. And ironically then that's where, you know, the money that's swallowed up by fees is, you know, needed the most. But we are partnering at the moment with uh, the United Nations Development Program, um, uh, a big, another major Asian bank at the moment. And we are running um, projects um, where people are able to send, uh, like you mentioned, one of these entitlements. So to give you an example of what we're doing in Serbia with the United Nations, this is a project that was recently signed off by the uh, by the, the prime minister, by the, the mayor of a town called Niš. We are enabling the diaspora from a number of different countries. They're able to send um, a conditional entitlement back to their loved ones on the ground in Serbia. Uh, and remittances there is worth about $4 billion a year to the local economy. Right. But what they want to do in line with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals is to ensure that, uh, number one, the remittance fees fall below 3% by the year 2030 and that they eliminate remittance corridors of greater than 5%. But what we're enabling people to do is to send um, a, a non-cash-based remittance to an individual on the ground. And again, the key being the digital identity. And then they're able to make a payment to either the gas company or the electricity company or the grocery store with the non-cash based remittance that they've received to their digital identity. And again, we've managed to bring the fees way down. We've partnered with, uh, with Stripe, um, yep. a payments company, again, started by a couple of Irish guys, now worth about $9 billion based in Silicon Valley. They're called the Collison Brothers. Uh, and we are, we're taking that market on then and we're going to scale as we speak with that. We're live in a number of countries and Serbia probably being the, the best example of that technology at the moment. Um, another one, Bob, that we're doing right now, we've got a product called uh, Trace Donate. And if you look up tracedonate.com, what we're enabling uh, members of the public to do is to do peer-to-peer donations from one person to another. And the person then on the ground holds an ATEC digital identity. You can send them a donation in the form of a digital asset. Again, that could be like your utility, your, sure. ga- your gas, it could be cash. And we're enabling them then to obtain products from merchants or a good or a service. And then you as a donor get a notification in the form of either an SMS or an email. It's sent to your mobile phone. And I would tell you, Bob, your donation was spent in Lebanon buy person X if they choose to, to reveal their information yep. to buy a product Y. So again, that's a really big consumer play at the moment. And that's something that we've, uh, we're deploying right now with the Irish Red Cross. We're going live in the Pacific with another NGO very shortly. And that's a product that's built, it's up and running, it's been deployed. And again, donations is a huge market. And normally what happens with your donation is that it ends up in a big pile and you're reliant then on the NGOs to report back on what happened with manual paper-based oftentimes or a spreadsheet but with this bringing in the blockchain bringing in identity bringing in the different people and bringing in the digital asset we can prove that you can show people where their donation was spent and you can make it completely transparent that's a really really big one for us at the moment it's brilliant because it cuts out the middleman who 
is often the person who makes all the money. It really does. And you spoke, Bob, about the idea of the, uh, the so-called bag of cash. Uh, yes. we, we've got a partnership with the, with a really big bank. And they've told us that, look, we will send money from places like Kenya into South Sudan because it's literally the only way to get the cash there, that they haven't got the infrastructure in place. And we know as soon as that bag of cash hits the ground, people, unfortunately, do put their hands in it and it's distributed then amongst, you know, maybe a corrupt few. And then a little bit trickles down to the people who really need it. But with the platform and the technology that we've built, we prove that we can bypass all that. I'm delighted to say that we've been doing it since 2015. Brilliant. Niall, unfortunately, we've run out of time. That 33 minutes and 11 seconds went very quickly. Um, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can find out more about ATEC. I absolutely love this. I think this is brilliant. And it's, um, it is so needed. It can, it'll cut out enormous amounts of money that goes to third parties across the world and it doesn't matter whether it's remittance whether it's um entitlements or whether it's aid or whatever there are always people with their hand in the till and uh, unfortunately they get away with it if you want to find out more about both aid tech which is a i d colon t e c h and nile go to aid dot Technology. That's AID.technology, where there are a plethora of stories and articles. And uh, thanks very much. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Uh, we're on Voice America Business Network. We're broadcasting today from where entertainment and technology intersect, Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. For all of you marketers out there, how would you like to go about marketing an illegal product? Ease, the weed delivery platform, is not your traditional marijuana company. In the past four years, Ease has used a barely legal market to its, to its advantage. It's servicing 100-plus California cities and half a million users, all without being able to advertise or even physically handle their own core product. Now, in the wake of California's marijuana legislation and with national legislation very remotely possible, Ease has its eyes on a new goal, to be the first household name in cannabis. It's really interesting because I went to um, my local Ralph supermarket and as I walked in the door, a guy from Ease gave me a sample of marijuana in a supermarket in California <laughs> where the product is federally illegal. Now, Ease founder... 
Keith McCarty was one of the founders of internal messaging platform Yammer, and his um, aim was to create the Uber of weed. So he sold his startup to Microsoft for $1.2 billion, and he assembled a team of developers to work on an app and found a way to circumvent the regulations that most marijuana companies faced. By positioning his service as a technology platform, not selling weed, the app would help dispensaries accept orders, manage their own driver fleets and process deliveries. These would take a cut of the process in the form of a technology fee, all without handling a a single gram of marijuana. So the question was, how do you go about marketing the unmarketable? How do you grow a company when traditional paid ad channels are illegal and both Facebook and Google banned advertisements for illicit drugs? Instead, these would have to rely on the community to drive new users using ambassadors, a referral program, free T-shirts, weed influencers, and email marketing with subject lines like, what was, what was Shakespeare smoking? Luckily for Ease, the business model was a PR goldmine. When Ease launched, news outlets had a field day. Jimmy Kimmel even riffed on the premise in the opening segment of the Jimmy Kimmel Live Show, which goes out to about three or four million people. So that publicity boost drove about 100 deliveries in the month of July. After that, their community-based marketing strategy really began to take off soon reaching 100 deliveries a day. About six months in, Ease had earned its first $1 million in revenue, and by the end of the company's first year, they over, had over 100,000 users. That's without being able to advertise and promote their product. Now, because popular weed culture doesn't exactly reflect a picture of health and innovation, They wanted to win the mainstream consumer, so they had to revamp Riffa's image. So Ease Insights was formed to craft the narrative with stereotype-busting stats. For example, in 2017, nearly 50% of Ease users had a bachelor, a BA degree and made over 75,000 a year. That sort of positions it a bit differently. It also meant no black and white and black and green branding, no pot leaf sweatpants, no hazy lounges. Instead, Ease's brand would be blue and white, bright and friendly, featuring promo pictures of happy hikers, and most importantly, no smoke in sight. It also meant keeping Ease's brand at the forefront, from order right through to delivery. They didn't highlight the dispensaries, they owned the customer. And with with legalisation came regulation. Starting last January, Ease could only work with licensed dispensaries. And in California, there was only two. And backlogs were in the thousands. Delivery time skyrocketed and the bottleneck forced Ease to shut down temporarily while they got into compliance. They were soon back up and running. Their user growth exploded, but now things were different Post-legalisation, these could only work with large dispensaries that had the infrastructure to be compliant and the scale to make deliveries efficient. And there were only two of those. So they're now at 180 employees, mostly engineers. 
The company operates under new leadership with updated positioning focused on social good. In 2020, they aim to become profitable and sell $1 billion worth of weed. (laughs) So they have to adapt, adapt or die. With national regulations and consumer sentiment currently holding big retail at bay, it's easy to imagine a post-US legislation scenario in which a big player like Amazon simply comes in, cuts out the middleman, crushing ease like they did Instacart in the grocery business. So these better make hay while the sun shines, I reckon. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. You don't want to be ordinary. And if you're always trying to be normal, you'll always be boring. And you'll never know how amazing you can be by being a little different. So hopefully join me again next Tuesday when I will again be broadcasting from Hollywood, California. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.